Okay, good evening, everybody. Shkoff for those who came by. Let's begin the shir. And uh, tonight, of course, is in memory of two great gedolim, Rav David Feinstein and Rav Jonathan Sachs, uh, two very different figures. And what I wanted to do tonight was to envision or imagine them in conversation with each other and you know how that conversation would look, topics that they would share in common, and how their different ways of looking at the world, or the unique ways they express their ashkaf vision, how that would express itself in terms of the ideas exchanged. So let's begin. I, I imagine in this conversation, uh, and along the way I may get the biography or not, you know, I'm more interested in uh, sharing with you sort of the ideas and the divrei Torah between them. But I imagine that, you know, that Rav David Feinstein may throw into the conversation at first, um, a beautiful Ha'ara he had, beautiful Ha'ara he had in his introduction to the Jewish calendar. He wrote extensively on the Jewish calendar. He felt uh, people were not versed in understanding the significance of Zmanim and how Jews the notion of time. So he writes the following. He says that a lunar calendar, the reason why Jews follow a lunar calendar is because it has a very unique message for our people, right? Every person is born under a mazel, loosely translated as and what that means is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives everyone a preordained destiny. That determines whether a new child is going to be poor, brighter, dull, stronger, weak, healthy, or sick. And people are born under a certain muzzle, right? Certain muzzle. Certainly, though, destiny alone is not going to predict whether a person is going to be successful or whether they're going to fail. It can't be. Then for us, in understanding is, on one hand, the sun symbolizes destiny. It never changes. Clouds can obscure the sun. And in extremely southern countries, you're not going to get its direct rays, but the rays are always there, covered or not covered. But says Rav David Feinstein, the Jewish people have a different destiny. They have a different calendar. Ein mazali Yisrael, the Gemara 156a, and that means that the destiny of the Jewish people is subject to constant change. It's subject constantly be in flux. And the classic is in, examples in the Torah. We just read about that. Avram contended that the laws of nature dictate that him and Sarah are not going to have a children together. And in response, HaKadosh Baruch says, right? Come outside. Good morning, Shabbos. HaKadosh Baruch Hu Stand out from your constellation. Stop thinking that you're stuck. You're not stuck. And says Rabbi David Feinstein again in his introduction to his commentary on the Jewish calendar that the significance of why Jews... Um, pay so much attention to a calendar, right? What's this month? Look at what you guys are obsessed with this month. What's this month? Because us, the ability to transcend it, the fact that we can this month, so to speak, is why we pay so much attention to it. Meaning what he's getting to, Rabbi David Feinstein, is that by paying closer attention to Zmanim, being more sensitive to Zmanim, when is Shkia, when is Seis, when is Olos, being sensitive to Zman allows us to appreciate the miracle that our lives often live above Zman, live in a way, our destiny, the trajectory of our lives, live in a way that don't make sense when you look at the normal patterns of time. Uh, I feel like Rabbi Jonathan Sachs would turn back to Rabbi David Feinstein and point out the following. You'd point out that the human body contains 100 trillion cells, and within each cell is another nucleus, and within each nucleus is a double copy of the human and each genome contains 3.1 billion letters of genetic code, enough, if transcribed, to fill 
their library of approximately 5,000. And each cell, in other words, contains a blueprint of the entire body, which Now, the cumulative force of these scientific discoveries is nothing short of wondrous. But how does that relate to us? And Rabbi Jonathan Sachs said the cell, right? A single cell is a highly complex structure. But for us, we look at halacha in the same way. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs points out that halacha and zmanim are the cells of the Jew. They're microcosms in that little zman. You're driving, you're driving before Shabbos, and suddenly comes shkia, comes the 18 minutes, and stop. And everything just ends. And in that minute, in that fraction of time, right when the zman of the mitzvah begins, and olos hashachar, right when the zman of the mitzvah starts, in that moment is a universe, says Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. He points out the following. He says, we know that we have the drasha mimachras ha-shabbos, right? When a person begins to count the omer. Old debate the Gemara talks about with the tzedukim of how we counted the omer. And listen to this ara. He says like this. He said that we know that according to the Gemara, Shammai, right? Shammai ate all his life. Everything in his life he ate in honor of the Shabbos. So the Gemara says that if he found in a, a, you know, a good piece of steak, a good piece of meat, he would say, let that be for Shabbos. And if he later found a better one, he would put aside the second one for the Shabbos and eat the first now. Base Hillel, right? Hillel Hazokeh, he had the opposite. He had a different approach. Meaning everything he did was L'Shem Shemayim. Everything was the sake of Shemayim. Everything, right? Baruch Hashem Yom Yom. Bless Hashem each and every day. And therefore, from the first day of the week, he would prepare for the Shabbos. But each day would be its own. He would appreciate every moment, every, every significant second. What's the machlokis between them? Listen to the way Rabbi Sachs explained this machlokis. Shammai, what's called teleological time, right? We spoke about this in show a little while back. Teleological time, meaning tele- teleos means a journey towards a destination. And already from the beginning of the week, he's conscious of the end, right? We say that, uh, you know, that, that Shabbos, or when we speak in our tefillah of Shabbos, we figure it as, yes, sof maseb machshav it's already their thought conceived of from the beginning, even though it's the end. And therefore, time, according to Shammai, is not a mere sequence of moments. It has a purpose. It has a direction. It has a destination where it's headed. What was Hillel's way of living? Hillel, by contrast, lived each day in and of for itself, without regard to what came before or what came after. Each day needs to be appreciated in its own way. And therefore, says Rabbi Sachs, that there's two conceptions of Zman that are taking place over here. Two conceptions of how a Jew appreciates The minute is significant because what it's going to lead to, what it builds toward, it, it, it's like counting the Omer. You're, you're counting down towards a Maimon Harsinai. But we know also within the Sugya of Matan Torah, also in the Sugya of counting the Omer, I should say, there's also the idea of seeing each day as an independent mitzvah, appreciating it each for its individual second. And a Jew lives in both conceptions of time. I'm here right now, a bracha. Such a present thing when I make a bracha. I'm here, I'm right now, I'm in this moment. A person is always living with zmanim that stack on top of each other to build a magnificent and beautiful edifice, something incredible. That's why we're able to make a siyam, because everything you've done before is going to add up to what you're going to do now. What marked Rav David Feinstein's personality was a sense of anivas, a certain humility. Um, I think it's part of why you won't find hundreds of videos of Rav David Feinstein speaking. There was a, there was a certain anivas in how he approached things, in the way he delivered shirim, and the way he gave over his Torah. And it doesn't mean that his silence on a YouTube video 
is, doesn't mean that there isn't a plethora that we have from Rav David Feinstein. You look at all his Kolda Disvarim, you look at uh, the Svarim Vidibartabam, Shalos and Chus Vidibartabam, you can't go five lines without another quote from Rav David Feinstein. Uh, someone told me they brought a Shaila to Rav Yashiv, a Shaila that came up in America. And Rav Yashiv said, I'm not going to weigh in on it until you find out. Let me know what Rav David Feinstein said in America. Unbelievable. So it, it, the, don't mistake the silence of Rav David Feinstein online or the silent footprint of Rav David Feinstein online uh, to mean that it's someone who didn't have what to say, but it was, was a giant, was a lion with so much in there. And, and, and that humility is, was his avoda, a humility. Rabbi Sachs would have appreciated that and did appreciate that humility. Um, and Rabbi Sachs shared the following idea, following insights on Anivas. He said like this, says, based on the psukim in Dvarim, that when it talks about the laws of a melech, right, the laws of a king. So we know that when there's appointed a, law, a king, he has to write for himself his own copy of the Torah. He has to his own copy of the Torah, and it stays with him all, he reads it all the days of his life, right? And he does it, carries it with him, and has to be careful so that he doesn't, two things it says the Barsha, that he doesn't feel superior to his brothers or turn away from the law, from the right or to the left, okay? So says Rabbi Sachs, he says, this yisod, this yisod of not feeling superior is so critical for the melech to be a Jewish king. That's, that's the yisod. And he says, this is one of the genuine revolutions of Judaism that Judaism brought about in the history of spirituality. The idea that a king in the ancient world should be humble would seem crazy, would seem comical. And we could still today see in the ruins and the relics of Mesopotamia and Egypt an almost endless series of vanity projects created by rulers in honor of themselves. You know, the Havdil Plato conceived of a notion of a, a philosopher king, right? He thought a government should be run by a philosopher king, someone who's perfect in virtue and, and wisdom. And that's the person who should run a society. It was an idea in imagination that he came up with, but he didn't come up with it. Rabbi Sachs said this was the very basis of to the Torah. The idea that you can have a melech is only going to work. And this is the Rabbi Sachs answers the contradiction, famous contradiction. The Torah says, you shall place upon yourself a king. But in Shmuel, it sounds like when they asked for a king, they were punished for it. It wasn't the right thing. They were criticized. What's the answer? So the answer is the Torah is telling you if he's going to be somebody who is not job, who's not running for the position, someone with the humility, that's the person who should lead you. That's the person who should lead. But if someone is stepping up and saying, I'm going to be the king, I'm going to be the king, then it's an avera, then it's a chait, then it's just like every other, it's like everybody else in the world. It's no longer Jewish version of philosopher king. It's something else entirely. Um, the stories of David Feinstein's Yashras, uh, which was also a hallmark of Rabbi Sachs' personality, uh, a complete and a very straightness to who they were. The story of David Feinstein, um, someone told me he was collecting for MTJ. And when he went to go collect for MTJ, someone gave him two checks and said, this one's for the yeshiva and this one's for you. And he took the one that was for him and he gave it back. And he said, I'm sorry, you're welcome to give it to the yeshiva. He said, but you never would have thought of giving it to me if it was not for the yeshiva, right? Um, you never would have thought of giving it to me if it was not for the yeshiva. And therefore, Yashris dictated that I could not take it, that I could not take it. Um, this, this, you know, straightness, this, this idea of being yashar, um, for Abdavid Feinstein, of course, animated the writings of Rabbi Sachs as well.
course. Um, we know there's a concept the Gemara has certainly by Shabbos. Adam Bahul Al I'm going to try to stop shuckling. People are texting me that by shuckling, come in and out. I start shuckling when I'm teaching Torah. I'm going to stay still. So we say that Adam Bahul, I'm frozen now. Adam a person gets all crazy about their money. And if you don't give certain concessions, they're going to violate Shabbos. You have to be careful. Adam Bahul People do strange, you know, bad things when money is at stake. Right? Financial gain can be a huge temptation. And therefore, you have to be careful uh, when creating certain halachas. And when it comes, for example, to financial matters, especially when public funds are involved, there has to be no room. No room. The, the chumras of a collector of tzedakah that the Gemara and the halacha imposes upon such a person. So there should be never any doubt. It says in Parshas Pekude, Eile Pekude HaMishkana Edus, Asher Pekad Alpi, right? That there be Moshe, that Moshe counted everything that was there. Right, the amounts of the materials that were used for the tab- the tabernacle of testimony, right, all the different counts that were and so forth. Now, the passage goes on to list the amount of gold, the amount of silver, the amount of bra- bronze. Why was that? Why did Moshe do that? Right. So the Medrash says because people would criticize Moshe. They would say, "Look at that neck. Look at those legs. Moshe's eating and drinking what belongs to us," and and. You know, who's in charge? A man who's in charge of the work of the Mishkan. What do you expect? He's not going to make himself rich. And as soon as he heard this, Moshe replied, Chayenu, he goes, Chayenu, by your, Chayecha, by your life. As soon as the Mishkan is complete, I'm going to make a full accounting. I'm going to make a full reckoning of every single one of those details, every single one of those items. And therefore, trust, says Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, is the essential component of public life. A people that suspect its leader, it's not going to work. Yashris is the hallmark of Jewish leadership. If there is no Yashris, if there is no straightness, if there is no honesty, the very framework begins to fall apart and such leadership cannot last. It won't work. You know, uh, someone sent to me today, I want to give Yashkoch to Mickey Fennig, uh, who sent me the following. So uh, I'm pulling it up here on my WhatsApp. It was a, here it is. So the, they have online, I forgot who puts this up, where they ask a question of the week. Like, for example, if you could spazir with one great gadol who lived of all, all time, who would it be? And you could pick the person, you know, they ask different famous people, different rabbonim, different scholars, who would they pick? Like, oh, I would love to meet uh, Rabbi Akiva, the Chafetz Chaim. So the question of the week a little while back was if you could have three dinner guests, anyone from the beginning of time, right? Who would you invite? Who would you invite? Right? See, so getting different famous people, Rabbonim and other people are answering. Answers things I would have write. Right? Someone writes, uh, Benny Friedman answered, uh, Avma Vinu, Eliyahu Anavi, and then he threw in Sandy Koufax. Okay, good. Good answer, fine. You have different answers. Someone else here wrote, Fabian Schoenfeld, Avram Yitzchak, Yaakov. Okay, different answers. Listen to Rav David Feinstein. Again, the question is, if you could have three dinner guests, Anyone from the beginning of time, Tanakh, history, music, sports, relatives, politicians, who would you invite? Rav David Feinstein said, I would find three aniyam. I would find three poor people. Those are the three. That sensitivity, that sensitivity that a Torah's chesed al-lashayna, Torah's chesed al-lashayna, something that animates us, that molds our personality. As much as we'd love to meet the Chafetz Chaim and the Vilna Gon and everyone else, our first thought has to be to caring for other people. That has to be our first thought, the mitzvah. The first thought has to be the mitzvah of being there for other people, of showing up. 
you know, I heard Rabbi Jonathan Zach say something unbelievable. Um, he was talking about, uh, and this is almost a, a tangent, but Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, I heard he was talking about um, how come there's no book of philosophy on Judaism until you really get to the Rambam or the Chovas Halavavas. There's no book of Jewish philosophy in the antiquities before that period. Right? Where, where are all the beliefs of Judaism articulated? And Rabbi Jonathan Sachs said, because for the Jewish people, the sitter was always our book of philosophy. Only a people like us have turned our, our axiomatic principles into music. It's what we sing. It's what children chant. We sing our philosophies. We sing our beliefs. We sing our ideology. I think they printed that in his name in the introduction to the Koran uh, Sachs sitter. Uh, is printed in the introduction. And the idea of seeing Judaism as a song, it has to animate your personality. It has to change who you are. Um, the idea of Rabbi Sachs wrote on, when he wrote on, uh, on Zosa Bracha, right? On Zosa Bracha, he wrote the idea that there's something poetic about the last mitzvah being to write the Torah, the Torah down. The 613th commandment, to make the Torah new in every generation, symbolizes the fact that though the Torah was given once, it has to be received many times as each of us through our study and practice to recapture every time, to sing it. And though the Jews, when the Jews speak, they often argue, but when they sing, they sing in harmony because music is the language of the soul. The idea that Rabbi Sachs had, whether it was the sitter or whether it was Torah learning, uh, music played a very central role to him. And I think in an interesting way, uh, what that means metaphorically is that Torah is not just something intellectual and academic. It must sing its way into your life and it affects your very personality. And one, those who were around Rabbi David Feinstein or Rabbi Jonathan Sachs understood that it did affect and imprint their personality. It's a beautiful ha'ara. Um, a, a boy showed me a while back of our mitzvah shetel. He was older, an older fellow who had a bar mitzvah shetel that was written by Rabbi David Feinstein. A bar mitzvah shetel written by Rav David Feinstein. And Rav David Feinstein said that there's a significance, a great significance to the Masorah we have about the differences between the hand and the head tefillin. And we know the head tefillin, um, each has four parshias in separate compartments, right? And that's because each parsha gives us a different reason to do Hashem's mitzvahs, and in particular, tefillin. The first parsha that's in there stresses that Hashem took us out of Mitzrayim. The second parsha focuses on Hashem bringing us into Eretz Yisrael. The third about our mitzvah to love Hashem. And the fourth is about reward and punishment. And what's the idea? Psychologically, we're all different. We're all different. And the four compartments symbolize that each of us need to come to the mitzvah in, in different ways. We all come to Abbas Hashem. We all come to a relationship with Torah. We all come to a connection to Judaism in different ways in different ways. And the exploration of the person turning bar mitzvah is the beginning of a journey where they're going to find their way to Hashem. Uh, as Rabbi Jonathan Sachs pointed out in his Haggadah, he had a twist on the famous Dvar Torah that's both in Rav Olbi's Haggadah and also in Rabbi Riskin's Haggadah, that the four sons of the Seder represent the four different parts of the personality. Um, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, in his commentary on the Haggadah, points out that the four sons represent four different ways that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is calling you in to reach him. Four different ways to find uh, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. He points out that the Russia, where it says, Maha Avodah Zos Lachem, right? The Russia Mahu Omer. It's telling you, 
it's not punishing the Russia because the Rambam writes if the if a Russia if a wicked person is over bar mitzvah punishing him is just going to turn him off right if he's under bar mitzvah how are you gonna what are you gonna say the, his words don't mean anything yet so mahu omer means that Russia is telling you you should be listening to him and what's he telling you this is brilliant the Russia is calling you out the parents. He's saying to you, what's this? This means nothing to you. You're doing everything by rote over here. This is what you're telling me to keep? You don't, I see you and I see it's lifeless within you. And it's teaching us that everybody has to find their way to the mitzvah, their connection to it. And that's this beautiful speech that I have here holding that Rav David Feinstein wrote that everybody has to find their way to the mitzvah, their way to Avodah Hashem. It's a beautiful idea. Um, Rav David Feinstein uh, explains uh, the following. We know the Arana Kodesh that housed the uh, luchos, that were given to Moshe by Hashem himself and was made of wood sandwiched between an inner and outer layer of gold. And by the way, um, Rav David Feinstein said this at the Shloshim for his father, Rav Moshe Feinstein. It's beautiful, beautiful. By the way, at the funeral, everyone who was there recognized that Rav David Feinstein was on his mother, on his mother. Why? This was the godless of David Feinstein. He realized that everyone was going to be focusing on Ramosh, because Ramosh you could talk about for years. There's no end to what you could say. And, and everyone would ignore one of the significant and crucial elements for how Ramosha became Ramosha, and that was his mother. So at the funeral, the Leviah for Ramosha, Rav David Feinstein spoke extensively about, uh, about his mother, uh, you know, and what she meant to Rav Moshe. So anyways, at the, at the Shloshim for Rav Moshe, Rav David Feinstein was talking about why the Arana Kodesh was made of wood sandwiched between inner, outer, inner and outer layer of gold, right? The whole thing should have been solid gold. Shouldn't the whole thing have been solid gold? What's the benefit of the middle layer being made? Right? And, you know, as is the weight of the Aaron, made it around, according to many sources, eight tons. Hold on. Let me get some people in the room here. That's eight tons. So if that's the case, the whole thing was miraculous. So at that point, what's the wood going to accomplish? So Rav David Feinstein said that while gold is beautiful and regal, and there has to be a covet that's due to Torah, it's missing something. Gold isn't alive. It just is. Wood, on the other hand, is a living, growing entity. And the symbol of the wood is that Torah was not given to the cold and inert, but rather to the living. It needs to grow. It needs to be able to move, even though you decorate it with the gold and you make it look beautiful. But it needs to move. It needs to dance off the page. It needs to be something that sings to us. It needs to be something that sings to us. If I may play on that from where Rabbi Jonathan Sachs would go with this, is he was very insistent. And if you would read his book, The Dignity of Difference, um, I'm highly recommending his book, Morality, which is incredible. A- incredible. It should be mandatory reading um, for any high school and up. Anyways, Rabbi Jonathan Saxon's Dignity of Difference was talking about that if we understand um, the music of Judaism, the music of Torah, and what it means to us, we don't, be, we don't have to be afraid. And, and chase away and demonize what other people are offering. Listen to what he writes, Dignity of Difference. It, it's, it's, um, it's how Jews should see and deal with other peoples and faiths. He says like this, it would be like being secure in one's home, yet moved by the beauty of foreign places, knowing that there's someone else's home, not mine, but still part of the glory of the world that is ours. 
It would be like being fluent in English, yet thrilled by the rhythms and resonances of an Italian sonnet one only partially understands. It would be to know that I am a sentence in the story of my people and its faith, but there are other stories, each written in the letters of lives bound together in community, each part of the story of stories that is the narrative of man's search for God and God's call to mankind. Those who are confident in their faith and are not threatened, but enlarged by the faith of others, in the midst of our multitude, multiple insecurities, we need that confidence. Don't mistake this passage, by the way. Don't understand this to mean that he's talking about, you know, a Jew has to accept that every religion has truth. That's not what he's saying. That is not what he's talking about. What he's writing here in Dignity of Difference is when a person has a confidence and appreciation of what their Judaism all is about, they can appreciate that which somebody else has, even if it's not their own even if it's not their own faith, even if it's not what they have particularly on their own. And that's the dignity of difference. When a person under any type of demonization of people's positions, other people's ways of living is essentially an insecurity with your own way of living. It's an insecurity with with a lack of understanding the beauty and the depth of what your religion, of what Judaism is all about. Again, opening line, secure in one's home yet moved by the beauty of foreign places. You could appreciate from a distance the beauty of foreign places. And that was his idea, um, to live a life so full that uh, while Rabbi Sachs was taken from us at a young age, too young, so much more that needed to be written. Um, I am excited to say that uh, Rabbi Sachs's last project, I believe, there might have been other projects that I'm not aware of, his last project um, is coming out in December, um, a chumish. It's really the first chumish written for young adults, for teenagers. I wrote the commentary on it. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs wrote the translation. Uh, and uh, it was a, it's a real honor to be able to have that uh, together with uh, Rabbi Sachs that's coming out in December on Sefer Shmos. So Rabbi, Rabbi Feinstein said, Rabbi David Feinstein asked the following. He says that when Moshe announces in Vayelech, he says, I'm 120 years old today. I can't go in or out anymore. Hashem told me that I'm not going to be crossing the Yardin, right? The Jordan River. Why did Moshe find it important to stress his age? Like, what, and what did the crossing of the Yardin have to do with anything? Sir so David Feinstein said that it was all the factors at play here. Moshe reached the age of 120, the end of his allotted years, and he wasn't allowed to cross the Yardin. And his desire was not to interfere with Jewish destiny. He understood that I had filled my tafkid. That was with the age. It was 120. It was complete. I filled what I needed to do, what I needed to say. They each made so many amazing contributions uh, in the areas of halacha. We didn't even touch. Fascinating, just true. But if you talk about the areas of halacha, or David Feinstein, or David Feinstein uh, was asked the following. Um, there was Dayan Yecheskel Roth, uh, an article. He was attached to a heart-lung machine. And for he wasn't technically living. And it was reported that he remarried his wife when he came to, just in case uh, his temporary death severed the legality of his marriage. And Rav David writes, it's quoted in Vidibartabam, that when one does undergo such a temporary death, there's no need to remarry. He passed there was no need, this is incorrect, whether this was true, what people started saying, he said there was absolutely uh, no need to, to remarry. Another famous uh, psaac that came out recently uh, also quoted in Dibartavam, Simon Mandala, Professor David Feinstein, that if a person purchases a new safer, a new book that brings you so much joy, 
right? Meaning if you go ahead, here, this is how to tie it together. If you pick up a copy of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs's Morality and you're filled with such joy to be holding a copy in your hand, Rabbi David Feinstein said a Shechianu can be said, right? A Shechianu can be said. One of the most moving Divrei Torah I've ever seen was an insight from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs on the Haggadah. Um, it's, wow, it's an incredible insight. He asked the following, what is kol dichven yese Whoever's hungry, come and eat. Right? And we say, this is the poor man's bread. What are we doing? The Seder night is about freedom, ge'ula. Why are we busy with the poor man's bread? Whoever's hungry, come and eat. Those are great, beautiful things. I get it. But what does it have to do with the freedom? So says Rabbi Jonathan Sachs in his Haggadah that he had read Primo Levi's great book, If This Is a Man, which were the accounts of Auschwitz, his experience of Auschwitz during the Holocaust. And according to Levi, the worst time uh, was when the in January 1945, because they were afraid of the Russian advance. So all prisoners walk, they were taken on a brutal um, death marches, right? They were taken on the brutal death marches. And the only people left in the camps were those who were too sick to move. Now, for 10 days, they were alone with only scraps of food and fuel. And Primo Levi describes how he had some more energy, as opposed to the others who were there, and he was tasked with trying to get uh, some fire going. And he then writes, this is from Primo Levi, and then listen to the Chiddush, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs now making the connection. When the broken window was repaired and the stove began to spread its heat, something seemed to relax in everyone. And at that moment, Tawarski, who was a Franco-Pole of 23 with typhus, he proposed to the others that each of them offer a slice of bread to us three who had been working. And so it was agreed only a day before, said Levy, this would have been inconceivable. The law of Auschwitz was, eat your own bread, and if you can, eat that of your neighbor. To do otherwise would have been suicidal. The offer of sharing bread at this moment, the first gesture that occurred among us. And I believe that that moment can be dated as the beginning of the change by which we who not died slowly changed from prisoners to men again. Says Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the ability to share your bread with others is the hallmark of being free, is what it means to have chayrus. The ability that you can give to others, that's what truly means to be alive and to be free. And that's why on Pesach night, you begin the expression of freedom and geula with kol dich whoever is hungry, come and eat. That's what it means to be free. Listen to how a free man behaves with such humility and such midos. Convention of the Moetzes Gedole Torah. I heard this from somebody who was there. There was a convention of the Moetzes Gedole Torah, and at the end of it, in convention of the hotel, there was the Homowak, I don't know where it was. They announced Matze Shabbos that all the Gedolim, all the members of the Moetzes, all the Gedolim could leave without checking out. You could just leave. Everybody else should check out. This fellow said everybody packed out of the hotel. No one checked out. At the checkout line was Rabbi David Feinstein. He was the only one at the checkout line. Right? From his eyes, the Gedolim could leave. Me, I'm just a Pasha to you. That's what it means. That's Cheru. Ein Cherus El Charus right? Engraved on the Luchas itself to live a life that was such formed in such a way. I want to close this sort of, uh, you know, imaginary conversation that they may have between the two, between something that I think if Rabbi Fe- Feinstein turned to Jonathan Sachs and says, Do you have something that encapsulates your entire Hashkafa, your entire worldview? And 
I believe he would have shown this video. It's a six-minute video from the way Sachs put together. I think it covers all the asodas of contemporary Hashkafa in one six-minute video. It is incredible. It is done so well. So here we go. I'm going to share it with you now. Share screen, and we are on. Question any of us can ask is, do why I am a Jew? The deepest question any of us can ask is, who am I? To answer it, we have to go deeper than, where do I live, or what do I do? The most fateful moment in my life came when I asked myself that question and knew the answer had to be, I am a Jew. This is why. I'm a Jew not because I believe that Judaism contains all there is of the human story. I admire other traditions and their contributions to the world. Nor am I a Jew because of anti-Semitism or anti-Zionism. What happens to me does not define who I am. Ours is a people of faith, not fate. Nor is it because I think that Jews are better than others, more intelligent, creative, generous, or successful. It's not Jews who are different, but Judaism. It's not so much what we are, but what we're called on to be. I'm a Jew because, being a child of my people, I have heard the call to add my chapter to its unfinished story. I'm a stage on its journey, a connecting link between the generations. The dreams and hopes of my ancestors live on in me, and I am the guardian of their trust, now and for the future. I'm a Jew because our ancestors were the first to see that the world is driven by a moral purpose, that reality isn't a ceaseless war of the elements to be worshipped as gods, nor history a battle in which might is right and power is to be appeased. The Judaic tradition shaped the moral civilization of the West, teaching for the first time that human life is sacred, that the individual may never be sacrificed for the mass, and that rich and poor, great and small, are all equal before God. I'm a Jew because I am the moral heir of those who stood at the foot of Mount Sinai and pledged themselves to live by these truths for all time. I'm the descendant of countless generations of ancestors who, though sorely tested and bitterly tried, remained faithful to that covenant when they might so easily have defected. I'm a Jew because of Shabbat, the world's greatest religious institution, a time in which there's no manipulation of nature or our fellow human beings, in which we come together in freedom and equality to create every week an anticipation of the messianic age. I'm a Jew because our nation, though at times it suffered the deepest poverty, never gave up on its commitment to helping the poor or rescuing Jews from other lands or fighting for justice for the oppressed and did so without self-congratulation because it was a mitzvah, because a Jew could do no less. I'm a Jew because I cherish the Torah, knowing that God is to be found not just in natural forces, but in moral meanings, in words, texts, teachings, and commands, and because Jews, though they lacked all else, never ceased to value education as a sacred task, endowing the individual with dignity and depth. 
I'm a Jew because of our people's passionate faith in freedom, holding that each of us is a moral agent and that in this lies our unique dignity as human beings. And because Judaism never left its ideals at the level of lofty aspirations, but instead translated them into deeds which we call mitzvot and a way which we call the halakha and thus brought heaven down to earth. I am proud simply to be a Jew. I'm proud to be part of a people who, though scarred and traumatized, never lost their humor or their faith, their ability to laugh at present troubles and still believe in ultimate redemption, who saw human history as a journey and never stopped traveling and searching. I'm proud to be part of an age in which my people, ravaged by the worst crime ever to be committed against a people, responded by reviving a land, recovering their sovereignty, rescuing threatened Jews throughout the world, rebuilding Jerusalem, and proving themselves courageous in the pursuit of peace, no less than in defending themselves in war. I'm proud that our ancestors refused to be satisfied with premature consolations, and in answer to the question, has the Messiah come, always answered, not yet. I'm proud to belong to the people Israel, whose name means one who wrestles with God and with man and prevails. For though we have loved humanity, we have never stopped wrestling with it, challenging the idols of every age. And though we have loved God with an everlasting love, we've never stopped wrestling with him, nor he with us. I admire other civilizations and traditions and believe each has brought something special into the world. But this is ours. This is my people, my heritage, my faith. In our uniqueness lies our universality. Through being what we alone are, we give to humanity what only we can give. This then is our story, our gift to the next generation. I received it from my parents and they from theirs across great expanses of space and time. There's nothing quite like it. It changed and still challenges the moral imagination of humankind. I want to say to Jews around the world, take it, cherish it, learn to understand and to love it. Carry it and it will carry you. And may you, in turn, pass it on to future generations. For you are a member of an eternal people, a letter in their scroll. Let their eternity live on in you. We have lost in Rabbi Jonathan Sachs' ability to communicate through his words and for David Feinstein communicating his hanhagas, through his behaviors, and who he was as a person. Um, we have a lot to work on and a lot to work towards. It's a shame we'd be able to learn from their mutual legacies, their mutual conversation, and from that grow to be able to greet the Mashiach. Everyone have a good evening.